in a way, I was as proud as a parent that day because I, <laughs> I left you at the train station, the RERC line, I think, that went out to Versailles. And you guys came back rosy-cheeked and alive later that evening. <laughs> you managed to get back on the train, right. take it all the way back home, find the apartment, you know, let yourself in, go down to the market, get some food. Mm-hmm. And I think these are some of the parts of travel that are not on the tourist brochures, but they're part of the fun of it. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today, my guests are, well, what are you guys? Are you guys experts, public figures, or interesting people? Your parents. (laughs) So this is a whole new category of of podcast guests. Um, I'd like to think maybe you guys are interesting people. Now, why am I sitting in this room with you right now? Because we're in quarantine. We're in quarantine. We haven't been sitting here for a month, but we've been sitting here occasionally for the course of a month. We haven't really interacted with anybody else. Well, how many days did you figure today, Alice? Is it 28 days? I think yeah, so. Yeah, we've been in quarantine for that long. Yeah, and so I'm a travel guy. I'm often gone, but for the last 15 years, I've had a house right next door to my parents on the prairies of Kansas, which is convenient for many reasons, including we found out during pandemic we can hang out together and um, and tell stories. Um, and what is a topic of one of the stories we tell when we're hanging out during the pandemic? Travel. Oh. <laughs> Our travels. Uh, on three. But we'll say. Okay. One, two, three. Travel. <laughs> you guys know this. This isn't hard. Um, We actually don't have a TV out here, and sometimes we have little streaming movie nights, but oftentimes we pass the time by telling stories about our travel as we're here in quarantine. And I want to do a quick aside about uh, Giovanni Boccaccio's The Decameron, which, sort of like the Canterbury Tales, is a famous work of literature about people inside of a building telling stories. Uh, Are you familiar with this, you guys? have not read it, no. Okay. I haven't read it either, but I've read the Wikipedia entry about it. <laughs> and it's sort of, it's memory suffuses Western culture, especially during times of plague and pandemic, because it was written about the Black Death in Florence of 1348, when 100,000 people died in Florence. And to protect themselves, a lot of Italians, uh, particularly people of means, would lock themselves into a house with some food and some friends or family and tell some stories and sing some songs. And if they could, they would withdraw to the country. Now, we live in the country just because we're Kansas people, not because we necessarily thought a pandemic was coming, right? Because the Black Death, it cycled through like 17 times through Europe. It just kept coming and coming. They never quite got rid of it. So people would go uh, during the summer to the country. They would have festivals, and it was sort of the invention of the summer vacation. Mm-hmm. So we're sitting here in the country right now. I don't know if we're going to invent any new social rituals, but we sure have a good time telling stories. Again, we're not big, sophisticated international travelers. Mom, I think you were in your 60s before you had a passport. Um, we were big road trippers back in the day, but not necessarily international travelers. But as adults, since I've been an adult, we've taken some pretty special international trips and talking about them keeps coming into the conversation. Like we were watching Castaway, the Tom Hanks movie the other day, and they were playing a Doors song called Light My Fire. And dad, what did you, what did that remind you of? 
Well, it reminded me of Perrache in Paris, where Jim Morrison is is buried. Yeah, uh, Jim Morrison sang the song. Yeah, so it, it's funny how um, that'll actually come up in this episode that we went to Père Lachaise Cemetery, um, we saw the grave of Jim Morrison, and then years later we see a movie and it's like, huh, that's a fun song. We've been to that guy's grave, right? <laughs> so oftentimes the travels that we've done together have become a part of our conversation. This particular conversation we recorded right when coronavirus, maybe there was a couple of headlines coming out of China. We recorded this particular conversation in late February. The reason I did it because we did an episode about China and Mongolia and listeners really enjoyed listening to that because you guys aren't travel experts, but they sort of liked your attitude. I got pe- some messages of people who said, I like the way your parents travel because they, they walk all the time and they're just interested in everything. We talk about some of the sites of Paris and Prague. Of course, we went to some museums and stuff, but how about the way that people dressed in Paris? They were more formal. Uh, well, you would see people going to work on their little motorcycles and uh, the women would be in high heels and fully dressed, uh, you know, uh, like we did back in the 50s. And uh, the men the same way. So we'll touch on that. We'll, we'll dig into that in this episode, which really is about Paris and Prague. Um, even though we're recalling it here in, in the time of pandemic in our little quarantine. And we get into that. There, we talk about things that are that everybody sees in Paris, but then we talk about some of the things that almost accidentally we discovered on our own terms. And the Kansas comes up a lot. Again, you guys aren't super sophisticated travelers, so you often inter- interpret things not through the lens of some cosmopolitan idea of what places should be like, but hey, this reminds me of home in its own little way. So Kansas comes up a fair amount in the interview. Um, I want to touch, before we transition in the interview itself, I want to transition into some of my sponsors who I think are travel-oriented sponsors and have been sort of feeling this travel restriction time hard. One is Tortuga, and they make backpacks. Uh, And do you remember someone in our family who bought a Tortuga backpack for someone else in our family? Yeah, our grandson, Luke, uh, his mother bought one for him. And And she she made a mistake. Right. She forgot to enter the promotion code. So um, if you... Need a backpack, be it for travel or for just um, carrying things around during quarantine, go to rolfpots.com slash Tortuga and you'll get 10% off their selection of backpacks at checkout. And they'll know that you found them through this podcast. Unlike my sister who bought a backpack for my nephew without entering the promotion code. My other uh, sponsor is Airtrex, which sponsors uh, multi-stop and round the world plane tickets, including my trip last year. Do you remember where I went last year? Well, you travel so much. So well, well, you strong. went to Indonesia. Yeah, I went to Indonesia and Sri Lanka and Dubai and Georgia and some other places. Um, and there was a there was a commercial in the nineteen nineties that for Hair Club for Men, and the guy said, "I'm I own Hair Club for Men, but I'm also a client, right?" Well, Airtrex is my sponsor, but I also use Airtrex. And, and a year ago, I flew around the world on their itinerary. I had planned to use one of their itineraries to go to Europe with my nephew for his high school graduation. But sadly, like many high school seniors, he's not sure what's going to happen next. So hopefully we can jump on an Airtrex itinerary and do some more travel soon. That's Airtrex.com. Again, I want to support my, my sponsors right now just because it's a tough time for the travel industry. It is. Let's transition into the interview itself. We start by talking about why exactly it was we went to Paris and Prague specifically. Let's listen in. 
flew out and you met me in Paris and then we traveled to Prague. Do you remember why you did this? Neither one of us had been to Paris or Prague. Mm -hmm. And you invited us to go on a journey and uh, we decided we'd do it. Well, I invited you to Paris because I've been teaching at Paris, something I still do at the uh, July class at the American Academy every year. So that was easy. I could just host you in my apartment in Paris and you guys could see Paris, which you'd never seen before. Why did we go to Prague as well? Do you remember? Well, one of the reasons I was interested because we have uh, in, the, in Kansas where we live and the area just west of where we live, a large number of Bohemians. And uh, they came over in the latter part of the 19th century as farmers. So those people then were the capital of Bohemia was Prague. Mm -hmm. And it's, an, it's always interested me uh, in having, knowing a lot of these people and these families here, they still have a lot of knowledge of, of Czechoslovakia now, mm -hmm. uh, even though it was their grandparents or great grandparents that came over. Well, that's a great answer, but it's actually wrong. <laughs> it sounds good. In retrospect, it's it's you know you can make those connections, but there's actually a lot of Swedes in this part of Kansas too, and we didn't go. But to we didn't go to Sweden. But well, why Sweden. didn't? Why did we go to Czech and to Prague and not Sweden or Ireland or some other place? Greece, Italy, we we could have gone. Do you remember? We found a cheap airplane ticket. <laughs> oh, we don't remember that. Oh. that fits into our value system very well. <laughs> so I think sometimes the travel stories we tell in retrospect, they, they sort of have a causality, you know, that somehow, right. oh, well, we, we grew up around people with Czech names, so I guess we went to Prague. Well, no, I was searching online. Basically, we, we, you guys were going to visit me in Paris, and I said, should we take a side trip? Because I think I have a four, three or four day weekend. And I think you guys, you can correct me if I'm wrong, you guys said, sure, you know, wherever, we're happy. And so I researched and I found a Sky Europe flight. This is a um, Slovakian airline that went out of business two days, two years later for like $50 or 50 euros. Basically, we could fly to Prague from Paris, you know, for a fraction of the cost that you go from Wichita to Denver, right? So, so um, Prague just ended up on our agenda. In fact, in an alternative version of this trip, we may not have left Paris at all because there's a lot to do in Paris. But we decided, how can you turn down a $50 flight to Prague from Paris? So, so Prague it was. But let's talk first about Paris because Paris is a more, not only more famous than Prague, it's probably the most famous city to visit in Europe. What did you know about Paris coming in and what were you looking forward to seeing there? Eiffel Tower. <laughs> okay. It's always the first thing you think of is the Eiffel Tower. Well, I wrote a book about souvenirs and in one of the chapters I talk about going to a souvenir shop that's not close to the Eiffel Tower at all. You know, Paris is a, is a big city with like 20 Hollandaise Monts and, and this was, to get to the Eiffel Tower you would have had to walk for at least an hour from Mouffetard where we got this. And I asked the woman, you're not close to the Eiffel Tower. You can't see the Eiffel Tower from Room of Tower. Why do you sell so much Eiffel Tower stuff? And you know what her answer was? It's what people want. <laughs> you know, <laughs> people come to Paris and they might... have a preconceived conception. Well, and then they, you know, Room of Tower, Orwell and Hemingway lived there. There's mm -hmm. 
it's a beautiful street. Uh, there's good food there. There's good souvenir shops and, and jewelry shops. And, and, mm -hmm. and there's a market at the, at the base of the street. But at the end of the day, when people want to symbolize Paris, they want the Eiffel Tower. And so that's why they think that they buy those souvenirs. I think if, you, if you're coming to Paris for the 10th time, you're not going to buy an Eiffel Tower thing. Or you might not associate the, tower with, the city with the Eiffel Tower. But somebody said, I don't know if it was Roland Barth or somebody said, somebody said, well, where do you like to eat? He said, and he said, oh, the Eiffel Tower. And they heard the Eiffel Tower, why? And he said, it's the only place in Paris where we don't have to see the Eiffel Tower. <laughs> That's cute. Anyway, we did go to the Eiffel Tower, but not first. In Paris, we sort of went into a routine because I had to teach classes. And so my coworkers took you around some days and other days I took you to places. And... Um, what are your strongest impressions of places you went when you were in Paris? You know, of places that you heard about but ended up going to. What were your favorite places to visit? The Botanical Gardens uh, and the museum. Adjacent, mm -hmm. you know, the Naturalist Museum. So the Naturalist, Naturalist Museum and, and some of the famous naturalists. And, the Jardin de Plantes, which is right near right. where I live. Mm -hmm. It's like less than 10 minutes from, right. from my apartment. And so in a way, that was sort of your clubhouse. Right. right. It was just right up our alley. <laughs> yeah. We just got all these things, things kind close of by. Old things to look at and poke around. Well, it's funny that in our previous podcast, one of your favorite things in Beijing was the Natural History right. Museum. Right? And that's, that's, I was going to make that point. <laughs> so, so you could have said the Eiffel Tower or the Louvre or the Notre Dame, you know, places that you went to. But... Your one the first thing that came to mind was the Natural History Museum, which is very close to where we stayed. Right, and then La Chapelle, Saint Chapelle, Saint, Ch mm -hmm. Saint Chapelle. Yeah, mm -hmm. it, it was a beautiful place. That's just breathtaking. I, I think you you go to a place like Paris, and it's just inevitable that you're going to see the the main sites, yeah. and we did. And this, um, Saint Chapelle is, gosh, I hope I'm saying that right. <laughs> Maybe it is La Chapelle. Um, it is a church that was built to house the crown of thorns, I think. And the stained glass is maybe some of the best in the world. It's just fantastic. Oh, it is striking. Um, it's almost too hard to describe what's there. That the, the stained glass is so big and the carving is so intricate that it's, it's really a moving place to visit. I think it was funded by one of the Louis kings. I can't remember which number it was, but uh, St. St. Louis is named after that particular king. Okay, uh, St. Louis in the United States. Yeah, in St. Louis, wherever there's a St. Louis, I'm sure, or St. Louis. Right, yeah. yeah. Well, far be it from George Potts to make a travel analogy without coming back to the Midwest. Right? <laughs> That's right. So, for all of the main sites that we we're supposed to see, you guys talked a lot about families in the street yes. and dogs. In fact, if you go through... <laughs> The photos you took so many, it's like the dogs of Paris were a tourist attraction. That literally there's pictures of dogs sitting in window cells, walking down the street, dogs on leashes, dogs in artwork mm -hmm. from Musée d'Orsay, mm -hmm. dogs carved onto tombstones in the Père Lachaise Cemetery. That's right. Yes. That's right. I almost forgot that, Rob. Yes. <laughs> we found that tombstone. It had a dog carved on it. Quite intricate. And it was just... Amazing. We, well, we would not think of doing that here. Guess which one of the two of us gets most excited about dogs. <laughs> well, I imagine it would be Alice because I've read, I read your journal from that experience in anticipation of this. And not only did you 
were you seeing dogs everywhere, you were wondering about your own dogs back home, Martha and Anna. Right. You were wondering how they were doing. And I often use, when I talk about travel, I use you as an example that when you go to a place, you see it through the lens of whatever you're interested in. Mm -hmm. And in a way, that lens is as true as anything else you see. Because if you get excited about dogs and you note how dogs live different lives in a city like Paris than in rural Saline County, Kansas, then you're actually seeing Paris. In a way, that's truer than anything you see in the Louvre, or at least as true, because you're looking for patterns and you're noticing how it's different. Right. <laughs> I never thought about that until you pointed it out. <laughs> yeah, well, actually, I brag on you guys. Another thing was um, fascinating to me was the motorcycles, a lot of motorcycles. And they weren't dressed in leather jackets and black boots. The men were dressed with coats and ties, and the women had heels. Mm -hmm. And it dawns on you that was a cheap transportation way to get quickly from one place to another, go from home to work or whatever. But it seemed to be a very uh, conservation practice rather than driving a big Mercedes if they or, or whatever uh, through Paris to get to work. Yeah, there's sort of there's two Paris lessons there. One is that and, and you're an environmental scientist, so you're probably thinking about conservation in a sense. And I'm sure that that is a benefit. But also Paris is an older city that you can't just drive a bunch of build a bunch of freeways around Paris um, that fit giant cars is that you have these old seats, even though in the 19th century they sort of broadened the avenues of Paris. Motorcycles literally are, just make it easier to get around, cheaper to get around, simpler to get around, and the benefit is that they are more fuel efficient. The other thing that's very Parisian about what you just noted is that people dress up. Paris is a more formal city. Yes. That you have women of a certain generation that will put on makeup and a nice dress to go shopping. Mm -hmm. They will dress up to go to the supermarket because their cultural conditioning has told them that if you go out in public, you should look your best. Mm -hmm. And so that's why you see guys with, with ties and, and women with dresses and heels on motorcycles. And maybe that was being dressed up was a thing that impressed me. I was born in 1939. Everybody dressed up to go downtown to shop. Everybody dressed up to go to church. The women always wore a hat. The men always wore three-piece suit. Uh, the kids were always dressed in, in very well. And when you were 12 years old, you, you got a tie that you were going to wear to church. And we don't have those things these days. And somebody who's not my age, which I'm 80, uh, they wouldn't have thought of that at all. Well, the third part of this then is that travel can be time travel. And usually when I point out that travel is time travel, I say, oh, well, you go to the slums of Bombay and a lot of the buildings and the ways people live have similarities to how people lived in the Lower East Side of New York in the late 19th century. Well, this is time travel in that you're in an industrialized city, but people have not let go of that old compulsion that was normal for you, but not for me. I didn't grow up wearing neckties. I probably went to the prom or like... Lutheran confirmation before I ended up wearing a necktie. But we, in fact, I've probably said this myself. Oh, French people are so much more formal than we are. Well, in a sense, we used to be that formal. We just aren't anymore. Uh, and you, as someone who grew up in a society, even in Kansas, that was as formal in many ways as French society has been, you recognize that. And so I think generationally, 
we make a lot of general generalizations about things when we travel, but sometimes certain bits of information like the kind that you shared just now can really give you some perspective on what you see. I, I reflected on my grandpa Potts. He was a, a pretty good sized man. And uh, if somebody walked into our church and they were wearing shorts, he'd have grabbed him by the nap of the neck and thrown him out. <laughs> well, I think this is one reason not to go too not far on a tangent Christian. about... Fr- not very Christian. Not, Christian. <laughs> not to go too far on a tangent mm-hmm. about... Uh, culture, but there's this reputation that I grew up with that Parisians hate Americans, that French people are rude, that French people want nothing more than to say bad things about us. Well, I think part of the reason why that reputation has is that in a sense, culturally, they are the Dempster Potts's culturally of the world, right? So just like your grandfather, who probably has an even more stabilized sense of formality in church, he would not have settled for someone wearing shorts. Well, you know, in the 70s, 80s, 90s, when, when I was coming into a, a travel awareness and people, French people were seen as rude, it's like the French people were just saying, come on, you know, dress nice, learn how to say hello, at least. And I tell my students this, that sometimes when you think French people are rude, you're the person who's being rude, that you didn't say, you didn't take the time to learn bonjour, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. bon, bonjour, madame. And suddenly that gives you permission to, for them to be polite to you. We just, we just live in an informal era of American culture, which has its advantages and what's what I'm used to. But you guys time traveled in Paris. And when you saw women walking their dogs to the grocery store, wearing their formal dresses, well, not formal dresses, but nice dresses. Or pushing their grandchildren, older ladies pushing their grandchildren in strollers. Mm-hmm. And that's a nice way to connect. You just... Tell her that she has a cute little grandchild and you don't have to even know the language. You know? Well, I think that's your, your universal key. Everywhere you go, you're in grandmother mode mm-hmm. and, and there's a universal language of grandmotherness. Mm-hmm. So keeping in mind that, you know, the Louvre is the Louvre and Versailles is Versailles. Um, and you guys went to Musée d'Orsay. You went to some other places. I know that you liked Monet's Lilacs. You put in your journal that you liked Monet's Lilacs. And I know that at Versailles, you liked Versailles. You guys waited in line a long time. Um, Ladders were getting pretty full. Yeah. It was not only to get into the place, it was to get into the restrooms too. Well, that's it. I think that sometimes we forget those things. And if I hadn't have read your journal, I would have forgotten that you guys waited in line. Being a typical American, I thought, this is not good planning. Right. When you know you're going to have hundreds, if not thousands of people come through, <laughs> you ought to have huge restroom areas. Well, or multiple ones. Or multiple ones. Well, if Versailles was in America, it would be surrounded by a 500-acre parking lot, right? Yeah. <laughs> and a bunch of porta potties So yeah. I think... Well, we came in on the train, so... That's also part of the experience of France, is that you have to wait in line longer for to go to the bathroom. It's not a convenience culture, and that's part of the beauty of the city, is that part of the reason that you don't see big parking lots and porta potties everywhere, well, that means you have to work a little harder to find a bathroom. Mm-hmm. You just mentioned something that could be the most memorable part of going to Versailles that day. What did you guys do that established your independence and self-sufficiency in Paris when you went to Versailles? Okay, that was well. well we went by ourselves. We didn't go with you. Yes, we got it. You got us on. You held our hands. You got us on the train. 
Uh, I can't recall if he gave us a little sack lunch or not, but took us to the, to the car and set us down and, and said, now you be nice to people. And then you left and And, we were horrified. He, and he said, now remember you're a guest in their country. Don't forget that. (laughs) And so that's, that's just a good advice for anywhere you travel, you know, so here it was again, as in every trip when you take us to places, the parenting thing is turned around. <laughs> well, I was going to say, I told you the exact same thing in China and Mongolia. Yes. You know, that if in doubt, if you feel like people are being rude or dismissive or if things are inefficient, remember that you're not, you're not at home anymore. Mm-hmm. And so in a way, I was as proud as a parent that day because I, <laughs> I left you at the train station, the RERC line, I think, that went out to Versailles. And you guys came back rosy-cheeked and alive later that <laughs> evening. You managed to get back on the train, right. take it all the way back home, find the apartment, you know, let yourself in, go down to the market, get some food. Mm-hmm. And I think these are some of the parts of travel that are not on the tourist brochures, but they're part of the fun of it. Just the simple problem solving from getting to tourist attractions to getting food to cook for dinner. Mm-hmm. And you, you can't read the signs. You know, I mean, you can read them, but you don't understand what they mean. Uh, you you don't understand the language. Uh, most people would not be speaking English, so you couldn't ask them for directions. So you had to think for yourself. But they tried. People did try to accommodate us. They understood we. They were very nice. Speak yeah. the language, and so we managed yeah. to communicate. A smile goes a long way. It does. I was going to say the same thing. Mm -hmm. One thing I remember, do you remember one time we went into a market very close to where I live and something happened. There was a conflict with the proprietor of the market. Dad picked up some apples that he wanted to, some delicious looking apples that he wanted to eat and he went back and what happened? Well, well, I I got chewed out. I didn't didn't understand (laughs) a thing he was saying, but I knew what he was meaning. It wasn't good. So I was somewhat frightened. <laughs> well, and, and confused. I remember the look on your face. And this is another thing I talk about sometimes when I talk about travel is that, again, America is less formal. So when we go to a supermarket in the United States, we always just go to the produce section, pick our apples, take them to checkout. And some supermarkets in France are that way. But this was a more traditional French um, market or grocer. And smaller. And, and smaller. Mm-hmm. And there they have the idea of the metier or the profession and that part of his pride in a store owner is that he's the one who chooses the fruit mm-hmm. and, and in a way it makes sense because he bought it you know he's seen it sitting there and so of course you had no idea of knowing this but a french person would say i'd like some apples can you can you find me some good ones no, don't quote me on that but that's basically the gist of what they'll say they'll say yeah yeah i got these apples in this afternoon, you know, they, they're from an orchard out by Normandy. I think they're pretty good. I'll find you some good ones. And then he'll pick the apples and you'll talk about the weather and, and your dog or your grandkids. And then you'll check out. Whereas dad was just this American who swaggered in like a cowboy, grabbed a couple <laughs> apples and wanted to buy them and didn't understand why the guy was yelling at them. But that's how you learn about culture. It that is. sometimes the lessons of travel... Like you understand that now about France that probably if I would have explained it to you, it wouldn't have made as much internal sense as getting yelled at by the proprietor. And what, we knew that he was not saying kind things to us. Right. 
But we went back and we looked at the guidebook, our guidebook, and it told us that we should have let the proprietor choose our, our produce instead of handle it. So lesson Read the guidebook before you go out on your journey. Well, when we a few years before that, we didn't read the guidebook when we were in Busan, uh, and you got chewed out by some uh, dealer, retailer, or something for picking up things and looking at them. It was a similar thing. Mm-hmm. That basically, you defer to the proprietor. Right. Um, it's uh-huh. we have this sort of, you know, anything goes, winner takes all, open market idea to how you shop in the U.S., whereas it's more formal in other places. Um, but our, our travel writer's son uh, probably purposely didn't give us some of this information just so that we would have these kind of experiences that we could talk about several years later. Well, the funny thing is, is that your travel writer's son talks about these all the time because I think maybe I had internalized those things years before and then you guys' presence reminded me of things. Mm-hmm. And so there were some just basic mistakes you made like that. But then there was also some very basic discoveries you were making that, that in a way you were discovering the city in a kind of a sophisticated way because you were paying attention to grandmothers and dogs and because you were making eye contact and, and just looking at people on the streets and sort of differentiating between tourists and locals. And that is something that's easy to forget as tourists. We, we, we read up on places, we try to go in as savvy insiders, but it's, it's through making mistakes, really, that, that you get to know a place. I don't think your mother and I ever had a, a demeanor of savvy insiders when, when, we, when any place we visited. They obviously knew we were tourists. <laughs> Even New York City. Yeah. And so that, and those end up becoming memorable things because you guys were not savvy insiders, but you're good-natured people. And you want to learn and you're not afraid to admit that you may have made a mistake. And so um, that's why all these years later we're talking about that thing that happened in the market, you know. Now, I want to get on to Prague in a second here. But one thing that we talk about a lot that we went to in Paris, it's a fairly common destination for, for people visiting Paris, but it's not a top 10 destination. And that is Père Lachaise Cemetery. Which is unlike most cemeteries you see in the United States. So tell me about what Père Lachaise was like and why it was special for you guys, why we end up talking about it still. Oh, well-known people. Uh, my dad's favorite composer was Chopin. Mm-hmm. And his, Chopin's tombstone is there, surrounded by roses and other flowers. I mean, just almost piled on those. And I, I thought at that time, Dad would have loved to have been here hmm. to see that. He had such a connection with Chopin. We were always listening to his Polonaises. Well, there was Polish flags on his grave. And again, coming back to time travel, that actually this cemetery in Paris reminded you of your dad. Hmm. And the fact that that was covered in roses and flags means that other people also find a lot of meaning in Chopin. You know, that, that your dad was not alone in the world. There are a lot of people. And you even... You appreciated his... Uh, well, it meant something personal because it sounds like, you know, the the metaphor we have now is heavy rotation. It sounds like your dad played Chopin about every day. Just about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Speaking, speaking of music, who, who, who's another famous musician who's there? Jim Morrison. Yeah. <laughs> 
little difference. Quite a contrast there, isn't it? Uh, Come on, baby, let me light your fire. <laughs> Actually, it's reversed. It's like my fire. My fire. He, oh. he wasn't offering oh, to light the fire of another person. He wasn't that Come magnanimous. Come and light my, okay. I, I never listen to those kind of songs anyway. So. Well, it's interesting how when I was growing up, there was a lot of um, recent nostalgia for the doors. And it was still a popular place to visit. Um, but it wasn't necessarily the number one place to visit. We, we saw Oscar Wilde's grave. We saw Abelard and Eloise. Mm -hmm. And maybe you sort of learned more about who Abelard and Eloise were yeah. by visiting that. And then I remember you guys, it's, it's strange to think of a cemetery as an imaginative space. But I remember that we saw all these statues of weeping women. Not, not weeping men necessarily. I'm not sure why that was. But basically women presumably weeping for the loss of their loved ones. And so you started joking. Well, we need to put a statue like that over my grave. <laughs> right. Your mother weeping and being very sorrowful uh, at my gravesite. Well, you, you, could be the, um, you could be the pioneer who requests a weeping man next to the grave of your wife, right? Uh, well, no. <laughs> Yes, yes, but I could not imagine it at uh, our cemetery, uh, the uh, the St. Paul Cemetery in the in the country close to Gibson, Kansas. So. Not a place. <laughs> you could be the first family to have Père Lachaise style monuments <laughs> in they a were, in a rural Kansas cemetery. They would be the first ones that people would see and walk to, and they'd just think, "What is going on?" <laughs> well, it's interesting, and I, and I don't want to spend the whole time talking about this cemetery, but. That was a fashionable cemetery in the 19th century where people would basically build little miniature chapels over the tombs of their loved ones. Mm -hmm. And they still had stained glass. A lot of them were broken. Mm -hmm. And the, the strange poignant thing about that is that those were old enough by the time we visited that there weren't really any family people who remembered those people who were buried there in the 19th century. So they were very rich. It was sort of a status to show that they had a little chapel built over their tomb. Mm -hmm. And now they're just empty little tombs that nobody visits anymore. That's what the Bible says. You know, <laughs> life is like a blowing in the wind. <laughs> it's here and then it's gone. Yeah. Our earthly life, anyway. And I think a lot of the monuments and cemeteries are supposed to remind us of the temporariness of earthly life. But sometimes there's a meta understanding that when you see this chapel that had so much ego in it, <laughs> that clearly this person is saying, "I was I was wealthy in 18." 87 and so look at my fancy grave and now the, the stained glass is broken out and it sort of smells like pee and nobody visits it anymore right. and and what is sad is is i mean part of their ostentation adds to the sadness of that you know reality <laughs> the reality if it wasn't there <laughs> but but then you look at this and then just say well will anybody remember me hmm. And and so you know we'll have a little monument uh, to our who we are, our surname and our first name, and, but, and our our children, the parents of uh, Kristen and Rolf. Uh -huh. So that's some memory. But some people will say, "Who are the pots? We, I don't remember them ever being around here." Well, this is another thing that travel teaches you. I think that these are <clears throat> these can be existential lessons. That basically you can, 
live sort of a self-centered life, but then you go to the other side of the world where the most important people in French society were buried 130 years ago and their grave is already falling apart and nobody visits them. And it just reminds you, you sort of have to live now and travel is a way of living now, yeah. of embracing the moment and looking at the dogs and the grandmothers as well as the old monuments. Interesting. Interesting. It's good that we learn it now. <laughs> yeah. We have some time left to live. <laughs> So after we enjoyed France for several days, I had a long weekend and we went to Prague. Um, we took the RER train to the airport, we flew to Prague, and we got a pass, a three-day pass that covered metro, tram, and bus. We went into the check-in hostel, <laughs> check C-Z-E-C-H-N, and tell us about that hostel. Because when you think of a hostel, you think of a bunch of stinky, you know, people in their 20s sleeping on bunks. But what was this place like? It was nice. It, it was a nice, nice place. Again, there were a lot of young people, backpackers and, and things like that. But uh, it was, the room that we had was very, it was quite large, very, very nice. Comfortable. Yeah. Clean. Well, we were on the top floor because we had a, got a private room in the hostel. Mm -hmm. And I think... Even then, it was cheaper to split the private room than to get three different bunks in the hostel. Yeah. Very affordable. And the hostel was full of young people because other people were sleeping in, in bunk rooms. And I think I'd been there the summer before and stayed in a bunk room. But it was, it was nice. It's funny that in Beijing and in Prague, you guys were in your 60s or nearly so both times. And we were hostel dwellers, you know. And it was a good, it was a comfortable place to stay. Now... All these years later, you guys talk about Prague more than you talk about Paris. Um, yet, we maybe visited fewer iconic places in Prague. So what was it about Prague that made it special? Why do we talk about Prague all the time? The incredible diversity of architecture that dates clear back to the 8th century. There wasn't any bombing to destroy right, architectural... Right, that's a good point, George. Uh, 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 grandmothers future. pushing... Children and strollers. I mean, you could meet every, you know, lots of people just that way. Yeah. Well, I think the fact that you bring up architecture rather than landmarks speaks to our strategy for seeing the city, which is what? How do we see the city? Well, we walked. Yeah. Wow. So I think, and this, this can be a tool that works in almost any city in the world, ah. that we could have taken our laundry list of attractions, and we did see some attractions, but we just decided to walk and walk and walk. Mm -hmm. And so we went to that church in the center of town. Um, it, it, it's uh, Our Lady Before Time Church, which is sort of in the central square. It's near the, the astronomical clock, which is a very interesting thing. Actually, we're talking about going to cemeteries. If you look at the astronomical clock, you'll see all these figures and saints. And you also see a figure, a skeleton, Along with stars and sun. And it's it's interesting how clocks, the oldest clocks in places like Europe, reminding you that you only have so much time. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You have time. Reminds you of your mortality. <laughs> so that astronomical clock was built in 1410. And like all of the first clocks, it's funny, clocks are so normal now. We just have a clock on our phone in our pocket. But for for decades, if not centuries, the clocks basically said you're gonna die. So make use of your time. Time, we've mechanized this clock, but keep in mind that time is- Limited. Time is limited. Mm -hmm. 
And so it's interesting how those old clocks, it's a beautiful clock, um, they remind us of things that clocks don't remind us of anymore. Basically, they took, they put so much care into that clock and part of the care they put into it was, you know, remember your humanity, remember that your, your limitations, remember that you're only on earth for a short time. Mm-hmm. And how Use many people... It well. Yeah. Use your time well. <laughs> yeah. It's funny, we were in Prague for three days. We hit some tourist attractions, but it's not like we went from tourist attraction to tourist attraction. It turned into an architectural tour, and we knew that the reason that Prague was so interesting architecturally is because it hadn't been destroyed in World War II right. by bombing. Right. Yes. But we were also naivist. It wasn't like we were saying, oh, there's a cubist building a couple blocks away, let's check it out. It's just like, my goodness, that's sort of unusual. What is that? And then we would ask around or look in the book, and. Like the, the Grand Orient, the Grand Cafe Orient is literally a cubist building. You don't think of cubist architecture that much, but there was cubist architecture. Uh-huh. The most, speaking of function, the most spectacular Art Nouveau building that we visited was what? It was a post office. <laughs> Isn't that fascinating? A public service building. And you would think it would be in some fancy restaurant or something, but it was a post office. It was a beautiful post office, not just in the, the art the Art Nouveau paintings and detailing, but it, the light was perfect. I think it had like a sky dome or something. And we could have sat in there for hours. And what better place to have a beautiful setting is in a post office where from the common to the, the upper class yeah. come to use that. Yeah. Well, that was nice. And we, we did see some famous buildings, like there's the... Um, Oh, uh, the dancing buildings, I think. You guys call them by something else. Uh, Fred and Ginger. Yeah. The, <laughs> the dancers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It's the dancing house. That was actually, it, it, it's interesting that we walked around the city and that post office was probably built in the late 19th century when Art Nouveau was fashionable. And maybe the Cubist building was built a little bit after that. But we, we walked that first day and we found a Romanesque church that must have been back to the ninth century or something. And the funny thing is, is that we found that church not because we were looking for it, but because we were just walking around. Yeah. And then we got there and we asked about it and they invited us in. And, and, and so on the same day that we visited a ninth century Romanesque church, we saw this Fred and Ginger house, the dancing house that was built in 1992. Oh, was it that? Okay, yeah. I was like the 1950s. So. And it doesn't look like anything else. Yeah. Um, and I actually read about this. It's it's vernacularly called the Fred and Ginger House. But one, Fred and Ginger are Americans, and so the Czech people aren't sure if they want their place to be, you know, no, this beautiful <laughs> Czech-designed place to have an American name. And two, people don't really remember Fred and Ginger that much anymore. Right, no. You know, generationally, that's different. Yeah. And so it might be hard, because we're not architectural experts, it might be hard to convey how amazing it was architecturally because we're, we sort of were naive about it, except to say that at no point did we regret walking everywhere because every corner we turned, there was some amazing thing to see. Mm-hmm. Another strategy we have with this pass, and this could have been my idea too, that I realized that once, since we could take for three days we were there, we could take a, a metro or a tram or bus for free. Why not just take a tram into a, another neighborhood and walk around until you see what's there and if nothing is interesting, then jump on another tram or bus. And, and so I think our second day, which is probably our most memorable day, 
we took some trams and buses up into the hills. We walked on top of the hill into a neighborhood and we saw a certain kind of car and another kind of a certain kind of car. And what kind of car was it? Corvettes. And why, why were there Corvettes on top of a, of a hill in Prague that day? They were having a Corvette, Corvette show. Rally. And there were people from all over Europe that drove their Corvettes there. I remember I there were Germans and These slick, French. fancy cars, yeah. which meant a cost of fortune, you know. And they just seemed to be enjoying it, showing off their cars, admiring other people's cars, you know. Friendly, you know. So it's interesting. There was no... We had the Rick Steves guidebook, but Rick Steves couldn't have known that there was going to be a Corvette rally when we were there. And so basically, we were in this neighborhood. We started seeing Corvettes. We sort of followed the Corvettes to what is the uh, the exhibition hall, I think it's called, um, which is this big convention center up on that hill. And there were people from all over Europe who had brought these American cars, these beautiful Corvettes there. Um, and in a way, the Corvettes took us to this place that... There was much more than Corvettes going on there. Um, but what do you remember about the, the exhibition hall on top of that hill with the Corvettes and some of the other things? Well, was that the place they had the American license plates? Or, or just close to there? Well, yeah. I, I think that they don't normally sell American license plates there, but because they were selling... Um, because the Corvette rally was there, the souvenirs happened to be secondhand license plates. And what kind of license plate were they selling when we visited there? Saline County, Kansas. Kansas. <laughs> That's amazing. You're in the <laughs> middle of Prague. And we're from Saline County, Kansas. And there was a... We a didn't buy it because we had three of them at home. But. <laughs> so you traveled halfway around the world to Prague where this exotic stand that sold hipster license tags from the United States. They'd obviously invested in some secondhand license tags. And part of what... Prague and German and British people who had gone to this Corvette rally found exotic was a Kansas license tag. <laughs> so somebody at that Corvette rally, rally probably paid like $10 for that Kansas license tag, which you guys are required to put on your cars anyway. And that was just sort of a funny thing. Again, home keeps being in conversation with travel in funny ways. And that was a very unexpected way by which home became in conversation with Prague. Was it? Was it? Yeah, the ex exhibit hall, was that the one that had the dancing girls on it? Yeah. So this this is a, sort of an esoteric detail, but it might be fun to recall because it's it's a big building and it's obviously used for a lot of different events. They have a planetarium there. They have a lapidary museum. They have a panorama, mm -hmm. which is interesting because it the panorama can, uh, commemorates a, a battle that was fought um you know, I think in the 14th or 15th century, but it was built in the late 19th century before there were cinemas. And so basically it's it's sort of this interactive place where you can sort of re-experience this battle, not through a movie about it, but through a room that's been painted and given details about uh, this old battle. So it's funny how even the your basic assumptions about what is a tourist attraction can change because for us, the panorama was just sort of this room with a painting and some old cannons and stuff in it the funny thing is is that what attracted you guys was was a, a, a bass relief of three farm girls dancing on the side of the <laughs> exhibition center and what was your what was your association there well the farm girls that alice is from were 
the Roth girls, and they all of them just thought they were just the most beautiful thing in Coffee County, Kansas. We referred to them as the Roth girls. Well, you have to understand that my mom is one of three daughters, right? And she grew up on a farm, Mm -hmm. very simple, basic farm. And here we go to the Czech Republic, and and there's there's three farm girls, obviously very very simple, not fancy girls, just dancing and looking happy yeah, on the side of this building. They were barefooted. They were barefooted, yeah, yeah right. just like you when I met you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, George! <laughs> and so that became the joke that that that, that um, not only were there Kansas license tags, but the Rolf girls had been commemorated by this. Yes, yes. As your grandfather used to say, he had the most the best looking kids in the county. <laughs> So again, did say that. imagination becomes a part of travel, that we, we, we had some factual information about what we were seeing, but we were also having fun, mm-hmm. yeah. that we were having fun with it, that, that, that mm-hmm. somehow this building reminded us of Kansas in more than one way. Now, what was right across the street from the exhibition hall? I'm trying to recollect. You might have to give us a hint. It's the castle. Oh, okay. Yeah. So we're up on the hill. Right. We'd taken some buses up under the hill. We'd follow the Corvettes to what turned out to be this exhibition hall. And there was a pathway. And then we sort of saw some spires and started walking. Mm-hmm. And we ended up at one of the most famous tourist attractions in the city, which is this beautiful castle that overlooks the city. Right. I can see it in my mind. Mm-hmm. And... A lot of the buildings by this time of day were closed, but we were allowed to go inside the compound. And for me, you guys might have different memories. Half the fun was just the beautiful view of the city that it afforded us. Right. And even just looking up at the top of the ceiling, you know, was just... And looking down at the red tile roofs uh, as you were looking down at the Charles River. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What, What famous historical event happened? At this castle, I'm, many did, but w- which one is it strongly af- associated with? The dinner, de- defenestration. Yeah, the third de- defenestration of Prague in 1618 happened at this castle. What does defenestration mean? Fenster in German is a window, mm-hmm. and D would be out, so it would be Ausstufenster. <laughs> well, <laughs> in <cool>. German, <laughs> my sister, your daughter, took. Latin in high school, and the only phrase she remembered was cloudy finestra, which means close the window. Yeah. So defenestration means throwing somebody out the window. window. Yeah. To their death. And so in 1618, I think it was sort of a spat between Catholics and Protestants. It was more than sort of a spat. It was thirty year. It was the Thirty Year War, which it ended in 1648, and uh, eight million people were killed during that war. Most of them innocent villagers, as they would. The, their village would be either invaded by the Catholics or by the Protestants. And um, it was it was really not a war, it was wars, just a series of wars that occurred there. It's horrible, horrifying. In a way, defenestration is a fancy word for what's sort of a lynching, you know? Yeah, that, yeah that, right, that, right. In a sense, a mob of, well, at the time, where Protestant people had thrown a Catholic right. person that they didn't approve of out a window. Yeah. And that led to a lot of little wars in that part of Europe, most of which we probably don't learn about in school. And that person survived, I think, from being thrown out the window. So we walked down the hill, beautiful hill, back down (laughs) towards a famous bridge. Do you remember the name of that bridge and what makes it special? The Charles Bridge? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
had the statues and you know, mm-hmm. and then there was musicians on the bridge, really mm-hmm. crowded both right. ways. People selling things. I think the Charles Bridge is an example of how there's certain places that everybody goes to. It would be silly to go to Paris and not go to the Notre Dame. It would be silly to go to Prague and not go to the Charles Bridge. Everybody goes to those places, but they're still really awesome. The yeah. Charles Bridge was a beautiful place to visit. It didn't matter that it was full of tourists yeah. or you know buskers or people playing the didgeridoo or people handing out flyers to the torture museum up the street. <laughs> um, it was an it was an amazing bridge. It was amazing to walk on yeah. that bridge and look at the city. So what what are your strongest memories of of, Paris, of Prague and and also Paris all these years later? Uh, it, it's something that we talk about quite a bit. Uh, the people, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the people we met, the people we saw, uh, the way they dressed, the way they talked. The people, uh, how much people are alike and how how they're different, but uh, people are just uh, make a place. They do. You can't just have the the city without the people. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com slash deviate. And as always, you can contact me with questions or insights at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the theme music. Do you guys know Cedar Van Tassel? We do. How do you fine, know him? Fine young man. He's yes. our grandson. Yes, and your nephew, your oldest nephew. So this is very much a, a family enterprise. I'm not related to Justin Glow, but I've known him for a long time. Uh, why don't you guys say goodbye to everybody? Goodbye. Goodbye. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in to future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts.